0: Hello and welcome to the all new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me Adam Biles literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 a kilometer 0 in Paris, you can now subscribe for just 3 euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or, for users of all other podcast apps, through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. moment during The Ratline, Line, Philippe Sands recalls pitching the podcast that gave rise to the book as, quotes, a sort of Nazi love story. And while there is certainly a love story between two Nazis at its heart, specifically the marriage of Otto and Charlotte Wechter, The Ratline is also so much more than that. It's an investigation into the escape routes used by high-ranking German officials after the end of the Second World War that reads at times like a spy thriller. It's a study of memory, responsibility and guilt. It's an examination of the self-deception that filial duty can engender. And it's an exploration of the geopolitical, ideological and historical fault lines that are still making themselves felt and horrendously so today. The Ratline is an extraordinary, important and moving companion to Philippe Sands' 2016 memoir, East West Street. And I'm delighted to say that Philippe joins me in the Reading Library today. Um, Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank
1: you so much. And Philippe is delighted to be back at Shakespeare and Company. Oh,
0: Co. it's so good to have you here, even under such well, strange circumstances.
1: Dreadful days with the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But um, the horror is softened by wandering around this fantastic bookshop and seeing people sitting in corners and reading and doing all the things that we know people love to do in this fantastic place. So there's always a sort of sliver of light.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and this kind of reassurance that the, sort of the, the people will turn to to books, to to try and understand what's going on as well.
1: I think a deep desire to understand where we are today Mm -hmm. and how that situation is related to what has come in the past, in Mm -hmm. the 30s and the 40s, but even further back to the beginning of the 20th century and going back into the 19th and 18th centuries. Russia's relationship to modern Ukraine Mm -hmm. has a long history in a long context as, as you well know uh-huh. and i think people are now uh, some people starting only to think about mm. what is this place called ukraine
0: yeah 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 one feeling i had while reading the Ratline, um and i maybe this is something that just happens as as you get older um was this sort of sense of the sort of compression of history in a way so um, a lot of the book is about your interactions with Horst Wächter, the the son of Otto and Charlotte, the, this high-ranking Nazi couple, and it really it really struck me that how how close we are historically to something which, in many ways, I, I felt in my life, you know, growing up to this point, that the 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 uh, the events of the Second World War were sort of distant history, and. I, I found while well, reading this book, this sense of, oh, no, this proximity is is very much there. And the effects of these events are still being felt very much today.
1: Well, I think your feeling is right. Um, I mean, it's always best to talk about these things on, on sort of an anecdotal basis. Mm-hmm. But Horst is one of the six children of Otto and Charlotte Vechter, two very high ranking Nazis. Vechter had been the governor uh, of first Krakow and then District Galicia, which is mm-hmm. Western Ukraine. Uh, today, uh, Horst was born in 1939. Mm-hmm. I met him in 2011. Uh, it was another son of a high-ranking Nazi, Nicholas Frank, uh, who introduced mm-hmm. me. He said to me, Philippe, oh, you're interested in Lviv, Lemberg. Would you like to meet the former governor of Lviv, his son, mm-hmm. uh, Horst? So we met, and one thing led to another. I wrote a, a profile of him in the Financial Times back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And that was picked up and then turned into a film a BBC Storyville film, My Nazi Legacy. And in the course of the filming, Horst suggested, we travel to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We travelled to a place between Lviv and Brody. Brody, the birthplace of Joseph Roth. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to go on a particular day uh, in July uh, 2014. It was the annual celebration of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, mm-hmm. created by his father in 1943. I was pretty amazed that there was such a celebration day, but we thought, okay, why not? Horst wants to go, let's go. We turn up, we're in these vast fields, and there are hundreds of people Mm -hmm. running around in Waffen-SS uniforms. It was deeply shocking. Mm -hmm. Horst had chosen the day because this was a very extreme group, and I want to be very clear, this is not the dominant view in Western Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's a minority uh, view that saw the Nazis as liberators, Against the Soviets, right. against the Red Army. And that seed is, of course, exactly what has been seized upon mm-hmm. by Vladimir Putin, who calls the entirety of Ukraine completely wrongly, was run by a bunch of Nazis mm-hmm. a sort a of semi-Nazi state. And to understand Putin's claim, you've got to go back to this moment in 1941, when the Germans expelled the Soviets mm. and the Red Army, and this lingering feeling in parts of Ukraine that the Germans, even Nazi Germans, were better than the dreaded Russians or the Soviets.
0: Yeah, and that's something where historical context suddenly becomes very important. Because I have to admit, at the start of this invasion, you hear these, these lies being put out by Putin about the denazification of Ukraine. And my first reaction was, how can anybody Believe this, and you know is 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 he is he just assuming people are completely stupid? And then actually, in reading the ratline, you realise it's it's much more insidious than that. Actually, that he he in a sense knows certain buttons that he might be able to press that might be able, and you sort of pervert certain stories in order to get uh, a particular reaction. And I think that implies to uh, what you just described, the sort of the, the the idea that the Germans could in some way be sort of liberators, but also I think what happened after the war, which we'll come on to discuss, I think, a bit a bit later in this conversation, about the, the sort of the anti-communist position of the West and how certain high-ranking Nazis were therefore sort of incorporated into that fight. Like there was there was enough, I guess, grey areas in some of the behavior of states after the war that now, what, eighty odd years later, it still gives kind of Putin this material that he can he can use. Well,
1: I mean, uh, Putin is adept at pushing buttons, and you're absolutely right. He's pushing a number of different buttons. One button that he's pushing is to recall the greatness of 1944 and 1945, mm-hmm. when um, the Soviets and the Red Army swept westwards and quote-unquote liberated parts of Nazi-occupied Europe, along with the Americans mm. and the British and the French and, and various and various others. So that is been done for a particular reason. It rallies the population, mm-hmm. and to the extent that he's got significant support, it's done in that particular way. But it has a second consequence. By referring to the Nazi Ukrainian state, he's sending a signal to the Germans to butt out. You had your time in this part of the world. And there's a lot of things that are going on in the way Putin is playing this game. But the historical resonance of the role and the heroic place of the Soviet Union in 1944 and 1945 is absolutely at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. But you can go back even further. I mean, for those of you who are listening who've read East West Street, you will know that East West Street begins with the story of my grandfather, Leon Buchholz, who was born in Lemberg, Lviv, yeah. and who was a 10-year-old in 1914, leaves the city, because the Russians are about to arrive. So it's a sort of an ebb and a flow that takes place every 25 Mm. years, every 40 years, there's a a sort of handover of power Mm. and there's a shifting of the tectonic plates as a new power takes over. I mean, Lviv was a city which changed hands four times in the space of Mm. one month in November, 1918, eight times in the next 25 years. And they're used to blood and they're used to change and they're used to conflict. Mm -hmm. And Putin knows that. Um, And you need to read a lot of history to understand the speeches that he's giving Putin and the responses Mm -hmm. of the Ukrainians and this deep-seated negative feeling about the Soviet Union and Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Holodomor, the genocide that was perpetrated in Ukraine the starvation of millions uh, of Ukrainians mm-hmm. ruthenians as they, they were then called in the 1930s um again plays in public consciousness so the struggle of today has deep historical roots
0: mm. yeah 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 we get a sense from reading um your books both east-west street and the rat line that the sort of that you see in this kind of this historical research is kind of um sort of unpicking the these mysteries a way to to better understand uh your your personal story and also the the story of our of our societies and the story of stories of our times but i'd be interested to know about the two books because east west street is of course a very personal story for you and the rat line in a sense is less personal or in a sense more the a very personal story for Horst Wechter like you're you're uncovering what happened to his father and his mother, and you know, and, and, and the circumstances, particularly around his father's death. And I'm curious to know what was it particularly uh, about the the vectors um, that meant that you you felt that it, there had to be there had to be a book about it.
1: So horse is a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like him mm-hmm. at a personal level, but I don't like some of the things he says. Sure. And one of the things he says is, although my father was a very senior top-table Nazi, you know, number two to Himmler at a certain point, um, personally promoted by Adolf Hitler, indicted for mass murder, who then escapes in 1945. Horst says, nevertheless, he was a good, Mm -hmm. liberal, decent, Uh wonderful person and a great father. And it's my duty as a son to love him. Uh And that's a complex issue. I mean, many of us will ask ourselves the question, what if... What if my dad was a mass murderer? Will I continue to love my dad? What if my child Mm -hmm. becomes a mass murderer? We must talk about Kevin is the kind of fiction that raises that issue. And I think what I'm interested in is the relationship between these grand political events and family life. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite sympathetic to the idea of Horst wanting to find the good in his father, but appalled by the way in which he will turn a blind eye to unsavory facts. In the end, the reason that I wrote a book was that Horst gave me access to 10,000 pages of family documents, letters, diaries, photographs. I mean, just utterly amazing Mm. material. Just turned up in the post one day in a USB stick. I mean, he's an an ecologist and Mm. used (laughs) envelope. I put it in the computer. And it was astonishing. It was the entire relationship between Charlotta and Otto between 1929 when they met Mm. and 1949 when he died in strange circumstances in the Vatican. All of their correspondence, their postcards, their love letters and the substance uh, of where he was and what he got up to. But it had been filleted. Ah, of course. Much of the horrible stuff had gone. And so my job was to stitch together the private documents and Mm. the public documents that were available on what um, Otto Wächter actually did. Mm. There is a a wonderful historian, sadly no longer with us, Lisa Jardine, Mm. who always had the thesis that if you really want to understand history, go to the private correspondence, Ah. because there you will find the clues Mm. about what motivates people, what drove them, the tensions, and the issues. And it is completely fascinating. I think it is unique material, these 10,000 pages, all of which are now publicly available on the website of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. You can just go and look at it. and It's all in German, I would say. I worked with four fantastic (laughs) researchers. But you get a sense of what motivated this couple, and that's what fascinates me.
0: But this is also the thing with Horst, because... Um, I think you know we're talking about this idea of somebody wanting to present their their father as a, as a good person. He didn't need to make this publicly available, and so there's a sense of it's not just like he's this is not just somebody who knew his father or suspected his father was a bad person was trying to in some way manipulate how people saw him so that so that the public would see him differently. This was somebody who gave you all of this material seemingly in the belief that you would find within there the The proof, in a sense, that his father was this decent man that he he really believed him to be.
1: I've described it on occasion as a tango. Uh Um, Me trying to persuade Horst that his dad was a terrible criminal. (laughs) Horst trying to persuade me that his dad was a great bloke. Mm -hmm. And we both failed. I didn't move him an inch. He didn't move me a centimetre. And I think we continue to be Mm -hmm. in touch. Uh, and that's interesting. We speak to each other very respectfully, very courteously. I'm completely fascinated, and maybe this is because I'm a courtroom lawyer, by how people see, how the, how different people see the same facts mm-hmm. in different ways. So yeah. To give an example, there's one letter that Otto writes to Charlotte in December 1939. Describing the joys of being in Krakow, he's mm. the governor. The Vienna Philharmonic has been lots of wonderful art, lots of wonderful culture. A bit of local difficulties. Tomorrow I have to have fifty poles shot. Mm. So I show this letter to uh, Horst. He's aware of it. He hasn't really focused on it. And I say, tomorrow I have to have fifty poles shot. Horst looks at it and he says, Yes, of course. And I say, What do you mean, yes, of course? He said, He said, tomorrow I have to have fifty mm. poles shot. You see, he didn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was ordered to do it. And and his heart wasn't in it. He's not a criminal. He was Uh, just obeying orders. And this obeying orders defense, of course, is what the vast majority of people who are second or third generation will say about their parents or grandparents. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Although at another moment, uh, Horst also says when his father gave the order to people to To shoot, um, I think, if I remember rightly, it was the the massacre in the Italian caves.
1: It was the it was the massacre in Poland, a town called Botchnia. Ah, uh, yeah.
0: And and he says, you have to get the people who pulled the trigger. That wasn't my father. Yes. So in one sense, he's just obeying orders. Yeah. And in another sense, he's giving orders, but he's not the one that's ultimately Absolutely. pulling the trigger.
1: Absolutely. And that also I had come across for the first time in conversations with Nicholas Frank about the, the, the family of Hans Frank, mm-hmm. who had been Hitler's personal lawyer. That's described in East West Street. Nicholas once described to me a conversation around the breakfast table when um, a wonderful book mm-hmm which you must read if you're interested in the period by Curzio Malaparte, ah, yes, Kaput, yeah, yeah, yeah. which describes in yeah. detail meeting the vectors, meeting the Franks, a novel, mm-hmm. but I went and found the newspaper articles in Corriere della Sera and compared the newspaper articles that Malaparte filed in 1942 with a novel published in 44, yeah. which is a really interesting exercise. So Malaparte's novel comes out and it says that uh, Hans Frank went off to the ghetto in Krakow and they took pot shots at Jews And Nicholas described to me a heated conversation Mm -hmm. over the breakfast table. Uh, Did it happen? Did it not happen? Mrs. Frank saying, no, my husband never pulled the trigger. He was Mm -hmm. totally innocent. And um, Nicholas's brother, Norman, then piping up and saying, "Uh, mother, actually, no, I think I did go with him once. But taking refuge in this idea that you didn't pull the trigger, for me, is very odd. When Horst said that to me, I thought, let me see if I can go and find any more evidence mm. on what happened at this Polish town called Bochnia. It was the first act of reprisal killing in Nazi-occupied Poland mm. in, in late 1939. And Hitler personally ordered 25 Poles to die for every German mm-hmm. killed. And so two Germans killed, they find 50, actually 55 Poles. They're kids, they're 14, 15. And I end up finding the photographs. Mm. The album that was taken to commemorate this act of reprisal killing. And there is Otto Vechta supervising the whole thing, command responsibility. So for me, as an international law type of person, the question of who pulled the trigger is neither here nor there. I mean, we've got that right today in relation to Ukraine. There's a war crimes investigation. There's crimes against humanity investigation. Mm -hmm. There are going to be soldiers on the ground, Russians, commanders. Mm -hmm. But actually, the question is, does the command go right Mm -hmm. up to the very top? It's the same issue. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You said earlier that... um Uh, Horst hadn't moved an inch and yet that's not quite the feeling I get from reading a book it's more sort of his expressed position has not moved an inch but there are moments when you will show him uh, you know when you showed him those photos for example where one gets a sense as as a reader of some sort of internal movement going on so he's he's making accommodation so he's not changing his his judgment of his father but there is his understanding of what his father did is shifting within him when he's confronted with this evidence
1: he comes very close on a number of Mm -hmm. occasions but he can never quite get himself to say yes my father Mm -hmm. was a mass murderer those words that he asked me no longer to say in his presence and they're very painful for him and he doesn't want to confront them the book ends as you know i not to give too much away, with another member of the Vecchi mm. family expressing those words um, to me, which I asked Horst's daughter whether he, she had any objection to my putting them in the book, and she said no, absolutely not. She wanted me to mm. put them in the book. But as a consequence of the last sentence of the book, uh, and this weighs in a sense heavily on me, Horst disinherited his daughter. Wow! So um, this idea that words matter is mm-hmm. very obviously true um, but but tensions across generations mm-hmm. is one of the themes that I'm fascinated about I mean it's one of the connections I suppose between East West Street and and the Rat Line East West Street you could say is about silence in my family mm-hmm. mm. and uh, the Rat Line is about silence in another family uh-huh. on the other side of the story and uh, and there are parallels mm. I grew up as Horst did, in a family of silences. Uh-huh. and I'm fascinated by the connections between families on different sides mm. of the same story.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And indeed, we see plenty of different silences represented in this book. I mean, you when you interview um, uh, Bucco, who was who um, Otto uh, just spent some time in the mountains after his first uh, his first fled, and he this was the first time. He had spoken about his relationship with Vector, but he also had a kind of enforced silence that he would not talk about anything that happened pre 1945. Um and it just it just I wonder if this is sort of a generational thing in a sense, because I think of, for example, my grandfather who I never met, but who served in the Second World War. And my father said like he he never spoke about mm. it. Like it was just not something mm. that was done. That was something that was in the past and he wasn't going to I think
1: very often it's a protective silence. I mean, my grandfather, who lived here in Paris and who I was very, very close to, never once spoke to me Mm. about what had happened before 1945. Mm. It was just a closed door. And I and my brother as young kids knew, you know, when we were hanging out on the rue de Bourges in their apartment, Mm. just don't go there. Mm. Don't raise questions. And I have a deep regret about that. And I think, in a sense, the writing of these books I mean, I find the act of writing Mm -hmm. just a wonderful experience because you can explore so many ways of addressing issues. I think, in a sense, the act of writing both these books has been therapeutic, not just for me, but also for my mother in terms of opening a door to the telling of stories Mm -hmm. that we were not allowed to address, in my case as a kid, Mm -hmm. in my mum's case, for the totality of her life, and putting those stories out there. But I think in many cases, the silence is not malign. I think the silence is a protective silence. I think in the case of my grandfather, it was to protect me and my brother from what he perceived to be the horrors. Mm. And that I've picked up, as I describe, I think, I hope quite discreetly in, in the Rat Line, with the third generation of the vechters You know, mm. there was a moment where well, I went to Vienna and I met one of the Wächter grandchildren right. and, uh, and his wife, who had been a student of mine at New York mm. University, coincidentally. <laughs> funny the world old world, is, isn't it? <laughs> it, is, it is, the world is very, very small. And we went off and had, to, we had a nice dinner. And at a certain point, the grandson left the dinner table, went off to the mentor or something. And the wife leaned over to me and said, Philippe, can I ask you something? And I said, yes, of course she said can i ask that you make sure your your film and your podcast your book are never published in austria mm. and i said no but <laughs> why and she said to protect our child uh-huh. we've managed to keep the vector name out of the spotlight and if all this Vechter material mm. is now you know lolloping around people are gonna it, uh, they're gonna take it out on our on our our daughter the great granddaughter mm-hmm. of the Wächters. I think it's a nonsense. I don't think life is like that. I think part of the idea of life is to express and to share and writing does that. Mm -hmm.
0: There is a sense of, I think, sort of filial duty. um, So very, very present in the book. But interestingly, I think in Horst's case, uh, and it's interesting you talk about, about your mother, because as the book unfolds, we get a sense actually a lot of this isn't to do with his father in fact he didn't really know his father that well at a moment he says he didn't even really couldn't really say he loved his father and you you start to realize that so much of his his sort of positioning on the actions of his father is in some way to protect an idea of his mother charlotta who is an absolutely fascinating sort of binome to uh to otto yeah. in the book
1: i i think charlotta is the beating heart of mm-hmm. this book i think she's a completely fascinating character, a Nazi through and through Mm. and right to her dying day in 1935. And she plays a crucial role. She's totally supportive of her husband. Of course, he's responsible and has agency of his own. But there's that crucial moment in 1938 when they've stood with Hitler on the balcony of the Heldenplatz and they come into the building, down the great staircase. At the bottom of the staircase, he says to her, my darling, I have a decision to take. Do I go back to private practice in law? We'll do very well. I'll make plenty of money. Or do I join the government, Mm -hmm. as Saïd has invited me to do? And she says, join the government. Ah. I want the Mercedes. I want the (laughs) perks. I want the power. If she had taken a different decision at that moment, his entire path would have been different. The lives of the children Mm -hmm. would have been different. The lives of the grandchildren would be different. So that fascinated me about her. What motivated her? She came from a very different background. She came from a very wealthy background. Um, She was highly cultured, highly artistic, uh, not intellectual, but an utterly fascinating person who reduced everything into writing. Thank Mm -hmm. God, her diaries, her memoirs, her notebooks are just absolutely wonderful to read. And yet she is a truly awful person. Mm -hmm. So at one level, I was just appalled by her. On the other hand, you've alluded to this already, on 9th of May 1945, Wächter escapes. Unlike the others, he's not caught. He doesn't yeah. commit suicide. And it turns out he goes and hides in the mountains near to where Charlotta is living for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. He lives above 2,000 meters. And every two weeks, she goes and literally climbs a mountain mm-hmm. with backpacks, with food, with supplies, with clothing, with newspapers to keep her husband alive. Now, who doesn't want a partner who loves you so much that they will expose themselves to that thing? So it's this disconnect between her sheer ghastly Mm. awfulness and her ability to love her man and to be so protective of our children. Yeah.
0: And that, and that's the thing, I think, it's so deeply unsettling. Um, I mean, just as somebody who obviously hasn't read all, all of her thousands of letters, but has has read um, the Ratline, Line, is this sense of, you know, you said she was a, a deeply awful person. And yet she is also, as you say, capable of... Emotions which we associate with certain, a sense of sort of human dignity and yeah. nobility, whether it be love, whether it be loyalty. And I think that's one of the things which we find very hard to process um, when thinking historically is that it becomes very easy to think of kind of good and evil. Yeah. And the thing that the people who are on the, the bad side were, were sort of representatives of all the everything that is bad in humanity. Yeah. Whereas what we find is a very lively, vivacious, yeah. funny loyal loving woman who also holds as you say these absolutely ghastly ideological uh positions and just having to sort of to 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 accept the those two ideas can exist within the same person is something i think it's, it's very important for, for 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 readers to to be confronted with that I but
1: think. that's the reality of life which yeah. we know i don't believe in good and evil mm-hmm. and i never describe hans frank or otto Wächter or their spouses as monsters mm-hmm. they're human beings who did monstrous things i mean otto Wächter was responsible for the mass murder of hundreds of thousands if not a million or more mm. human beings jews poles um, ukrainians armenians you know roma people gay people i mean just uh, horrendous but And this is the complexity. He was also capable of love, and decency, and affection, and humanity, and generosity. And that raises, I think, for each of us, for me as a writer, for those who read, the question, what would I have done? Am I also capable of doing monstrous things? Mm. The answer maybe is yes, Mm. I am. And the reality of the human spirit is that nothing is black and white Mm. in terms of the identification. It's one of the reasons I love certain films there was that wonderful one um called downfall about the last days mm-hmm. of adolf hitler and it was yeah. very it was an amazing film but it was also very highly criticized because it humanized ah. her, and that was what i liked about it yeah otto vector and charlotte were ordinary human beings mm-hmm. they were capable of love and affection and decency but they did monstrous things how does that happen same thing with what's going on right now in ukraine i mean we've got know a portrayal of certain people uh, the upper echelons of russian society being described as maniacs monsters madmen. it's mm-hmm. much more complex than that much much more complex than that
0: this is maybe a sort of a salient point but does the um when you when you're in the heat of events as, as, as we are at the moment with with russia and ukraine do you think there is space for that narrative uh to or do you think it's, it's sort of do you think people would be sort of accepting of the idea of this nuance and complexity, given the, the, the horrors that are underway?
1: That's a really important question. Uh, it's a sort of temporal question. Mm. At what point do we step back and say, um, look, he's doing terrible things, but he's also got decent elements to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you're in the heat of the moment, in a sense that has to be suspended and but but it's not completely suspended i mean you know as i observe what's going on right now in the relations between russia ukraine and the rest of europe and the rest of the world one of the big questions that i have is what's motivating vladimir putin mm-hmm. and the reason that i'm asking that is not because i have a particular interest in vladimir putin but because i want to know what the end game is for this mm-hmm. how do we bring this madness this horror to an end? Is he acting rationally? Is he been driven by nationalism? Is it ideology? Is it territorial desire? What actually is motivating mm-hmm. him? And to understand the human, perhaps might bring a solution. So I think we do engage in those questions, even in the midst of the horror. But at the same time, we reach a certain line and we see what's going on on our television screens the targeting of nuclear facilities, of hospitals, of civilians. And we think this is horrendous. Mm. This has to stop. We don't care how it stops. We don't care what is done. Um, so I think there is a temporal element. I think one of the things that is interesting, and I think there is a pattern here is that the real literature um, about particular moments of horror often only begins after the passage of of, of time, of mm. a decent period of time, for things to digest, for things to settle. That's not always the case. I mean, one thinks of the writings of Primo Levi immediately right, yeah, yeah. after the horrors of you know, 19, the, 19, the, early, the mid-1940s. But I think in large part, much of the writing comes later when there's an opportunity to step back and think, okay, let the dust settle. Let's just see what's going mm. on here.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also a sort of a case of, of having the sort of the, the intellectual space, the emotional space as well, I suppose, to to allow for for this nuance and, and complexity, to allow the world to be grey rather than black and
1: white. And I think that space touches different generations differently. Mm. I mean, I think I was able to write about East West Street matters and Ratline matters in a way that my mother could not have because mm-hmm. it, she, it, I mean, it's her story much yeah, more than yeah. it's my story. It's my grandfather's story, but they were so deeply immersed in it. Mm-hmm. That ability to step back and describe, in a sense, quite dispassionately what has happened. I just wonder if you're able to do that or or it's a very rare human being who is able to do that. Again, I'm thinking yeah. of Primo Levi, who somehow was able to do it. And I've read and reread, you know, his writings about life in Auschwitz. and mm-hmm. It is extraordinary that he was able to suspend Hatred and overt sentimentalism and passion mm. and anger in simply describing life—it's ex- yeah. just yeah, yeah, yeah. extraordinary.
0: I think that that sort of that generational gap, in a sense, is certainly on display in um, when we see your interactions with um, with Horst as well, like as he is, of course, only one generation removed, mm. and you are well, one one or yeah. one and two generations yeah. removed. And you can already feel that sort of the space. You know, that could be a personality thing as well, but also I think there's a space in your life to to treat the story differently than there is in his.
1: There was a moment when I first met him and I was interviewing him and he described his sixth birthday Mm. um, in April, 1945, just before the war came to an end. And he is describing a state of collapse, Mm. him losing knowing as a six-year-old that everything is lost. The family's about to implode. I'm going to lose my security, everything. And he wept. Mm -hmm. And that really touched me. And I've never been able to get that out of my mind. And in that instant, I saw him as a victim. Yeah. Not the son of a Nazi, Mm -hmm. not himself a Nazi, which he's not, but as someone who went through a deep trauma. His Mm -hmm. whole world was shattered in a moment. And I've never... I've never been able to forget that, yeah, yeah, and and that explains why why I'm able, in a sense, to be perhaps overly generous with him, and it explains also why his daughter is able to take a more nuanced, more distanced mm. approach to facts that are dreadful. yeah,
0: we should talk a little bit about the the concept of the rat line because I realize we've referred to it um a few times, and mm. some of our listeners might not know exactly what that what that is so could you just explain we've mentioned the yeah. the end of otto's life but could you just let us yeah. know a little bit of how that connects to this, this idea so the directly.
1: rat line described something that it was known by high-ranking nazis as the reich migratory route, mm-hmm. and it was the path from italy usually to south america there were other places also and it was very highly developed um, it turned out and it was Implemented by a motley cast of characters, as mm. I discovered. Um, this wasn't just, you know, a group of Nazis working on their own to escape from investigation and prosecution. It was a high-ranking group of Nazis in their thousands mm. who worked with Americans, right, Vatican officials, Italian fascists, And what I learned was that the implementation of the rat line, the operation of the rat line, was inscribed in a new war, the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And Italy was a central place because it was the place that the Western powers, the United States in particular, deeply concerned would fall into the hands of Soviet Mm -hmm. power and authority. The communists were riding high. There was a great fear in the United States that the communists would win the 1948 election and so essentially what happened is the Americans cut deals with all sorts Mm -hmm. of characters um, as I've just mentioned and used the rat line Mm -hmm. I think as a recruitment tool it was a way to get hold of senior Nazis Rolodexes their addresses Mm -hmm. their information on who were the spies for the soviets yeah and they wanted that to fight the new war the cold war in writing the book i had the great benefit of the assistance of my neighbor in london john le carre who i don't know didn't know about the cold war i don't know about espionage it's not my my area and so i went to talk to him as i uncovered or sent documents that described this very strange coalition of Willing enablers to get Nazis out of Italy. He said to me I was there in mm. in that period, and my job was to interview Nazis. And I said, What? To find them and prosecute the, the wrongdoers. He said yeah. no, to recruit them. And he said it was very shocking. It was it was it was the moment that he really came to understand duplicity and ah. double standards. And I think, actually now looking back, it's possible to understand. The carre's entire fascination mm. with um the moral dilemma of the person who reaches a crossroads and decides whether to do the right thing or the wrong thing mm. with his experience as an 18 year old young british soldier yeah yeah engaged yeah. in that activity so it was a, a central part of his life and the rut line was real and some people got away mm-hmm.
0: I think there's something really striking as, I guess, a sort of a lay person, like somebody who's never been involved in um, sort of that that kind of, what would you call it, kind of real politique or something like that, about how quickly things were reconfigured after the end of the Second World War, after one enemy had been defeated, how quickly a new enemy was essentially, I mean, a new enemy, they... Uh, the Soviet Union had been around for several decades by that point, but like obviously Stalin had been an, an ally for parts of the Second World War, and suddenly everything was reconfigured, and the enemy of a few months ago became the potential ally against the new enemy. It's actually quite, um, yeah, as I say, quite shocking to the to the layperson to realise these kind of dynamics that uh, were at work then and are probably at well, work
1: The world now. is a really filthy place mm-hmm. then and it's a filthy place today. Look look what's happening right now. All of a sudden, Britain decides it's got to wean itself off Russian right. oil. So where is uh, the British Prime Minister? Saudi Arabia. To, he's off to Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to do a cut a deal with a murderer of Khashoggi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Who's, you know, nothing just changes. Just this weekend
0: executed, what was it, 81? Yeah, 81 people.
1: people have been executed this weekend. I mean, it's outrageous. Yeah. Nothing changes. And um, I I think uh, we've come to understand that firstly, things are never quite what they seem. Mm -hmm. Deals are being done in all sorts of ways that we don't fully understand. And with the passage of time Mm -hmm. will become apparent. And I think think our role as storytellers is to tease that out, but in a way in which the reader forms their own view as to the merits or demerits. Because two reasonable readers will interpret sure. this in totally yeah, different yeah, yeah. ways, depending on their own leanings, their own culture, their own ideology. And I think one of the things that it's important for a writer of this kind of material is to set out the material mm. and respect the reader's own judgments yeah. as to the merits of what's going on. Not to impose your view on the reader.
0: Do you think it can be said though that this kind of the the filthiness of this this dealing and the way the way things work in a sense, leave space for the sort of future misinterpretation and future kind of detournement that Putin is um, is doing now. Like when I was reading about, like I said, so the Americans' ally or getting in the Nazis to to uh, as allies against you know former Nazis as allies against the Soviet Union, suddenly it felt to me that this space was being created almost so eighty years later someone like Putin was able to sort of to put it to use. Do you think it's, if things were cleaner, if things could ever be cleaner, in a sense, it could act as almost as a sort of a barrage against this kind of, this detonement of history, or is it just a kind of an inevitability of
1: Uh, the politics of the world we live in? Welcome, welcome to the human being. Uh Welcome to life, (laughs) welcome to the world. It's all about power and authority and ensuring that what you consider to be your best interests are obtained. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, family life is a microcosm of that. We all are aware of arrangements that are made, understandings that are entered into, Mm -hmm. for all sorts of complex reasons. And, you know, uh, diplomacy between states and the Mm interactions of governments, I think, just follows exactly um the same path yeah. you know my enemy's friend is my enemy mm-hmm. my enemy's enemy is my friend mm-hmm. and we're seeing right now i think that the historical foundations of that period are with a long legacy and a long mm-hmm. shadow I, I think one thing that's become very clear is we in europe thought history had stopped uh-huh. That it was over. Yeah. These days of conflict in Europe were gone forever. And this is a rude shock. It's mm-hmm. a rude shock for my generation that has never experienced this. But for my kids' generation, you know, in their 20s, this is like, wow, pretty scary yeah. because yeah. they don't even have a memory of it. I mean, at sure. least I grew up with parents who had lived through mm-hmm. it and knew about it and would, you know, reflect on it or share aspects of it in certain ways. But for this generation now, in their 20s and younger, this is a, a totally new situation. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think it's come as a shock. So I suspect you're gonna get a lot more reading going on about what is this place called Europe and what are these historical things and
0: yeah. Which is not, certainly not a bad thing. Um, but e- but equally, the
1: conflict does take place in a very different way. I mean, we have mobile phones and cameras yeah. and social media. And so we're able to see a whole lot more mm-hmm. for ourselves and form views. You know, people in Mariupol are sending out um, videos of their situation. Yeah. And that opens up the imagination. And I think that will have consequences on how this finally pans out, I mean, the tremendous battle that's mm-hmm. going on right now in Russia for control of the narrative right. is completely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of it, powerful issues about freedom of expression, that extraordinary moment a couple of nights ago yeah. on a live broadcast on national television in Russia, when an editor stood behind the newscaster with a pancart which yeah. said, yeah, yeah. Um, no war, get out of Ukraine, mm-hmm. in English. Yeah. And only got, you know, a slap on the wrist that I thought mm. was interesting.
0: Yeah. Before we um, before we finish, um, obviously your work has taken you to um, Ukraine many times over the years, and particularly um, Lviv. Um, so I would just like to ask: since all of this started, um, you know, I'm sure on both a sort of personal and professional level, it must have had a, a huge impact on on
1: you. Yeah, huge impact. I mean, I'm in daily contact with mm. friends in Lviv and also in Kiev, and deeply. Um, connected i i feel it's very personal mm-hmm. i've spent so much time in ukraine and i have such dear and wonderful friends there who are extraordinary people mm-hmm. um that it's very painful to wake up each i mean the first thing i do each morning is i wake up and i i switch on my computer and want to see the latest news sure. of what is happening in ukraine and the reason i want to see the latest news is i want to know how my friends are yeah you know, human beings that I know who are in a state of incredible anxiety and fear. I know the streets, I know the buildings, I know the sounds, and it's the home of my grandfather. Ah. So in a very curious way, it's personal. But that bothers me also in another way. Putin did the same thing in Syria. Mm. Why didn't I wake up each morning and feel raising Aleppo to the ground? Hmm. is a horror. It is a horror. And I wasn't so connected. So that's made me question, you know, my own sense of engagement with these things. I mean, there are related issues. There is an outpouring of support for Ukraine, including bringing in literally millions of refugees and bending over backwards at the family level, many people, to house Ukrainian refugees. But what happened about the Afghans? Yeah, What happened about the Syrians? I mean, sure, what's happening with Ukrainian refugees is magnificent. But there's another side to the mm-hmm. story. I mean, our innate and terrible racism is there, yeah. beating as strongly as ever. And that really bothers me. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see if the narrative around
0: refugees, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly in the UK, but I think I think everywhere, really everywhere in the West, uh, will be shifted on by, by this issue, whether that sort of, I don't know what it is that sort of to, because people identify more with uh, the skin color or the religion or the culture of the Ukrainians, whether that will lead to a, what might be called sort of a net benefit sort of change in attitude for refugees generally, or whether I doubt it. you doubt it.
1: I doubt it. I, I've just finished another book, which will come out mm-hmm. in, in August in, in English and in French, The Last Colony, which is about a case that I've been working on about a place called Chagos. Yeah. Uh, a group of small islands, 58 of them, in the Indian Ocean, in which the entire community, 2,000 people, black, descendants of enslaved people, were removed by Mm. the British with the support of the Americans between 1968 and 1973 and cast to the winds. And each day I get an email from some of my friends from Chagos who now live in Mauritius or Seychelles and who suffered terribly, deeply hurt by Britain, reports of Britain opening up its doors, and paying families 10,000 pounds each, and my Chagossian friends basically say, what about us? What, yeah. you know, what happened to us 50 years ago? If we had blue eyes and blonde hair, would we have been treated differently? Would we have been treated in this way? And I think we've got some pretty fundamental questions yeah. to ask ourselves. Yeah.
0: Well, that is all we've got time for. Um, the Rat Line is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, uh, the bricks and mortar store, the online store. Um, Philippe Sands, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's just great to be in my favourite bookstore in the world.
0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just €3 a month production of this podcast is all done in-house here at shakespeare and company paris all music is by our resident jazz supremo alex Freiman, whose album play it gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen i'll be back soon until then take care and thanks again for listening